So good to uh, sing of the goodness of God with you all this morning. Thanks for being here. Good morning, Fellowship Greenville. It's uh, a joy to be with you. Take your Bible, turn to John 18. We'll get there in just a few moments. By the way, if this is your first time joining in with us or you're tuning in online, uh, we are so glad that you have chosen to worship with us. And one of the things that we want you to know about us is if you tune in on a regular basis, you'll find that most often we are studying our way through whole books of the Bible. And for about a year now, we've been working our way through the gospel according to John. And in these weeks leading up to Easter, we have planned things out from over, uh, you know, about a year ago that we would be right here in John 18 uh, at this particular time because John 18 and 19 are about uh, Jesus' journey to the cross, about his betrayal, his arrest, his trial, his suffering, his death on the cross. And so far, we've looked at Jesus' betrayal by Judas. We've looked at his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. We've looked at how, at the very same time, Jesus was inside being questioned by the religious leaders. Uh, Peter, his good friend, was outside being questioned about being a follower of Jesus, which, which he, de he denied uh, three times. Now, this week, the scene shifts from Jesus' interrogation by the Jewish religious leaders to his interrogation before the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. And so we're gonna read through this entire passage. I'm gonna read uh, chapter 18, 28 to 40, and then I'm gonna pick up a little section in chapter 19. But we'll read through it, and then we'll come back and we'll unpack it, all right? Uh, chapter 18, verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters, and it was early morning. They themselves did not enter into the governor's headquarters so that they wouldn't be defiled but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not, we would not have delivered him over to you. And Pilate said, well, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. And the Jews said, but it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. And this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was gonna die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, so are you the king of the Jews? Snicker, snicker. And Jesus said, do you say that of your own accord or did others say that about me to you? And Pilate said, am I a Jew? Your own nation and your chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so are, are, are you a king? Are you saying you're a king? And Jesus said, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I've come into the world. And that is to bear witness to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? And after he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in this man. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at Passover. So, so do you want me to re release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, not that man, but Barabbas. And Barabbas was a robber and a terrorist. And then down in chapter 19, verses 9 through 11, Pilate entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, just where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. And so Pilate said to him, you will not, you, you're not going to speak to me? I mean, do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? And Jesus said, you have no authority over me at all unless it has been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Now, I agree with Tim Keller who says that there are a lot of things we could spend time looking at in this passage where Jesus is being questioned by Pilate. For example, like at the end 
of Jesus' time with Pilate. Pilate says in uh, chapter 19, verses 10 and 11, he says, do you not know that I have the authority to crucify you? And Jesus says, you would have no authority, no power, unless it had been given to you from above. And so Jesus is saying, the only power you have has been given to you because it's a part of a plan. It is a part of God's plan. So yes, I'm gonna be crucified, and you're gonna do it, and you're gonna think that you did it, but it's actually part of God's plan. He's the one who's given you the power to do it, and God is the one that's in control, not you. Then he says, though, but the ones who handed me over to you bear the greater sin. So you see what he's saying. He's saying, on the one hand, everything is under God's control. Everything is happening according to his plan, and whatever you do, you're doing because it's part of God's plan, but at the same time, Jesus says, those who perpetrated this plan against me bear greater guilt than you, meaning the sins of the religious leaders is greater than yours because it's more intentional. It's more deliberate. They're more hostile toward me than you, so their sin is greater than yours, but you will bear the guilt of my death as well. And so here we have something that the Bible talks about over and over and over again in different places and in different ways, and that is that God is in sovereign control of all things, and yet you and I are still responsible for our choices and our behavior. Everything that happens, every choice that you make is a part of his plan, but at the same time, you and I bear responsibility for the choices we make. And that's pretty interesting. Now, how many of you like to hear a sermon on that today? Yeah, well, we're not doing that some other time, not today. But that's one of the things in the passage. Another thing is this. At the very beginning of the story, Pilate asks, so are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, are you asking me because you personally want to know, because you're personally curious, or are you asking me because somebody else has told you that I'm the king of the Jews. And what we see here is that Jesus is going after Pilate personally. He's saying, Pilate, this is something you should be taking personally. I'm not an abstract idea. I'm someone you need to take seriously. So what do you think of me? Who do you think that I am? And that's another way to preach the sermon. That Christianity is not an abstract idea. It's about a personal relationship with Jesus. And so everybody has to make up their own mind about him. Everybody has to decide where they stand with Jesus. Everyone has a choice to make when it comes to Jesus. You can preach the sermon that way, but I'm not going to go that direction either. Because according to John chapter 20, verse 31, where John says, everything that I've written down in my book, I've written with the purpose of, of, of bringing you to faith in Jesus so that you might believe in him as the son of God. So John tells us his purpose. So I think John is trying to get us to see something about Jesus here that will cause us to have greater faith and confidence in him as we live our lives in a world that is growing more and more hostile to our faith. And as I understand it, John wrote this story about Jesus and Pilate in such a way that we can see how Jesus handles himself in the face of political power. Pilate represents the Roman Empire, the greatest empire on the face of the earth until that time in history. And I believe John wants us to see how Jesus relates to political power. He wants us to see how knowing the truth about Jesus clashes with political power. He wants us to see how our faith in Jesus can grow stronger in the face of political power that opposes God. And that's why I've entitled this message, Religion, Politics, Truth, and Jesus. Now, I know for some of you, the little red light on the dashboard of your mind is just flashing away, you know, because I know that one of the rules of etiquette in business or at the dinner table, or when you're getting your hair cut, is never talk about religion or politics, because obviously these subjects are highly contentious and divisive. Now, by the way, it's interesting that the saying, the saying, never discuss religion or politics with those who hold opinions opposite of yours, that's been cited in print since 1840. And the saying was further popularized by the Peanuts comic strip in 1961, when Linus says 
There are three things I've learned never to discuss with people, religion, politics, and the great pumpkin. So I know that these, these issues are difficult, not, not the great pumpkin so much, but religion and politics. And, um, but, but, but in this passage, uh, John puts them side by side right in front of our noses, and so we can't avoid them. And in the church today, I know that religion and politics is a hot lava topic. I mean, now it's been interesting to me uh, to hear some of the comments that some of you have been making about these messages in John 17 and 18. Like, if I talk about unity in the local church, I'm accused of, be, of piggybacking on what Joe Biden said about unity in his inauguration speech. I'm like, really, seriously? I mean, look, Jesus' prayer in John 17 focuses on how his followers must be unified in order to effectively carry out his mission in the world. And I'm quite sure that Jesus isn't piggybacking on Joe Biden, and neither am I. I mean, I actually said in that sermon, I have no hope for unity in this country. I pray and hope that some kind of peace can be established between the two sides, but unity... No way, because there cannot be any national unity if we as a nation can't agree on what's true and false and good and bad and right and wrong. But if the prayer Jesus prayed for us the night before he was crucified centered on unity among his followers, unity among his followers, that is unity with you and the person sitting down the row from you or in the row in front of you or the row in back of you, if he, if he prayed for us to be unified as a church and if we can't hear what Jesus is saying because Joe Biden talked about unity, then my friends, we're in trouble because we have a, we've allowed a political filter to replace a gospel filter. Or like last week, I, I referred to Peter caving into peer pressure in the church in Galatia, falling back into some old Jewish bigotry against Gentiles, some of whom he had personally led to Christ. And I call that racism, which it was. The Jews saw their race as superior to everyone else. And even after coming to faith in Christ, some Jewish Christians still struggled with that old mindset. But, but now, with the political climate being what it is, if a preacher uses the word racism in a sermon, we're accused of pandering uh, to the left, and I got curious about that, so I did a, a search of the words racist and racism in my sermon file on my computer. And I found that prior to 2019, I used those words more than 100 times in sermons since 2005. <laughs> it's the same with the word injustice. The Bible is full of prophetic warnings against injustice. According to the Bible, God's people have to stand against all forms of injustice. Micah 6.8 says, God has has shown you what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Now, what's interesting is somebody came up to me after the last service and they said, Char you know, they're like, you're right. Charlie's right. You know, he, I, I've got this filter because when, when he said Micah 6.8, I thought he said MAGA 6.8. Okay, there you go. Oh, man. So, now, if you can't hear Micah 6.8 without running it through some left or right political filter, I, I'm just telling you, the problem's not with the preacher. <laughs> Listen, nothing has changed with me and how I handle God's word. What's changed is how politics is influencing how many Christians today hear God's word. Too many Christians, right and left, have adopted a political filter through which they see and hear what's coming at them. And as a result, we're in, we, they are promoting the kingdoms of this world over the kingdom of God. So we really do need to see how Jesus confronts political power, how he relates to political power, what he says to political power. We need to hear how he talks about who he is and what he's come to do so we don't allow our political convictions to keep us from hearing what Jesus wants to say to us in these troubling days. So the question is, how does Jesus relate to religion and politics and truth? What does he say about those things? And that's what we're gonna look at today. But before we do, let's, let's, let's pray together. 
Come, Holy Spirit. In this moment, help us to lay aside anything and everything that will hinder us from hearing Jesus' voice in this text today. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, look back at verse 28 one more time. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas, and Caiaphas was the high priest, the Jewish high priest that year. They led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters, and it was early morning. So the scene shifts from Jesus being questioned by the Jewish religious authorities to Jesus being questioned by uh, Pontius Pilate, the Roman political authority in the day. And what I want you to see here is the posturing going on between religion and politics. The Jewish leaders hated the Romans and the Romans hated the Jewish uh, leaders. And there was constant friction between the two of them. But here, the religious leaders are manipulating what's going on in order to get the political leaders to do what they want done. And they're breaking their own rules to do it. Now, Chuck Swindoll has a good little commentary on the Gospel of John. It's called uh, Swindoll's Living Insights, New Testament commentary on John. And in it, he has this two-page spread of how many laws the Jews broke in order to put Jesus to death. Now, of course, I know you can't read anything on the screen right now. I just want you to see the big picture of how Swindoll points out the injustice of all of these so-called trials that Jesus endured. For example, according to Jewish jurisprudence, no trials were to occur during the middle of the night. And this so-called trial occurred in the middle of the night. Trials were not to occur on the eve of a Sabbath or festivals like Passover or the Feast of Unleavened Bread, but this one did. All trials were to be public. Secret trials were strictly forbidden. This trial, these trials were secret. Capital cases required a minimum of 23 judges in the Sanhedrin didn't happen. Someone was required to speak on behalf of the accused. Didn't happen. The high priest could not participate in the questioning, but he did. The verdicts, verdicts in capital cases were to be handed down only in daylight hours. Didn't happen. There are 11 more, but uh, you get the idea. And Swindoll quotes chapter and verse from the Mishnah, which was the first written record of Jewish oral law, and he quotes from the Old Testament to show how Jesus' trial was a complete farce. And what we see here is how religion will break its own laws, rewrite its own beliefs and values when it needs the power of politics to help it get done what it thinks needs to be done. And in this case, religion is trying to manipulate political power to do the dirty deed of putting Jesus to death. Now, here's what Swindoll says about all that, and this is so good. He says, the Lord accepted that he would not receive justice from corrupt leaders. He knew the world was, then as now, polluted by sin and ruled by corrupt people. So he did not expect justice from the courts, nor did he, nor did he seek the approval of people. Instead, listen to this, the son submitted to the will of the father who permitted injustice to advance his plan. Moreover, Jesus refused to allow anger or bitterness on his part to distract anyone from seeing the truth should anyone truly desire to do so. So throughout his ordeal, Jesus entrusted himself to the one who ultimately and inevitably will judge every soul righteously. Now there's a great amount of wisdom in that for us like like the world in Jesus' day, today's world is also polluted by sin and ruled by corrupt people. And the way things are unfolding today, it's not surprising that there's growing injustice in the courts, and it's not surprising that those in power break laws in order to promote false narratives and radical political agendas. Swindoll, one more time, Jesus did not expect justice from the courts. He did not seek the approval of people, but he submitted to the will of the Father who permitted injustice to advance his plan. Mm, Chuck, that is so good, man. I tell you, I wish I would have said that. 
Well, what I want you to see here above everything else is that Jesus endured injustice with grace. He endured injustice with grace, and so must we. Jesus did not promise to take us out of the world or to prevent the world's injustice. Instead, he prayed, John 17, that we, his followers, would be preserved through trials, kept safe from the evil one and the coming persecution. And that means that Jesus will not always save us from injustice, but he does promise to save us through injustice. And that means that you and I can take great comfort in the fact that our Savior understands our struggles with injustice. Verse 28 again, then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. Now here's something else that comes out of religion trying to get in bed with politics. The religious leaders uh, bring Jesus to Pilate, the governor, and Jesus has been slapped in the mouth. He's bleeding, he's bruised, but there's still no official, official sentence that's that's been handed down, and, and as I said, this was, this was not a fair trial. There was no attempt to uncover the truth. The verdict had already been determined. The trial was a mockery of justice, and the whole thing was full of hypocrisy. Now, let me show that to you, middle of verse 28. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so they wouldn't be defiled, because if they were defiled, they would not be able to eat of the Passover. So on the one hand, they broke at least 18 of their own rules to get Jesus executed, but on the other hand, they would not enter Pilate's house because to do so, they would be defiled and then they wouldn't be able to continue to celebrate the Passover season. So get this now, it's okay to break laws to get Jesus convicted of a crime he didn't commit but it's not okay to enter the home of a dirty Gentile to do it. Now remember, it's like three o'clock in the morning and this crowd comes to Pilate's headquarters you know, with lanterns and torches and Pilate, I'm sure he doesn't wanna get out of bed in the middle of the night and go down and talk to a bunch of Jewish, crazy Jewish religious leaders, but he gets up and he goes outside and he says, y'all come in, let's talk about it and they say, oh, no can do. You're a dirty Gentile, we can't come into your house, which I'm, I'm sure that went over well with him, but. Uh, I mean, he, he, Pilate did not like these people. But verse 29, Pilate, okay, went outside to them and said, so what accusation do you bring, uh, do you bring against this guy? Now, what's going on here? This would literally be like a church arresting a man because he didn't believe in substitutionary atonement and they bring him to the courthouse and ask the judge to convict him of heresy. I mean, that's how Pilate would have viewed this whole thing. What is religion? What does this religion of the Jews have to do with me? This has got to be the weirdest citizen's arrest of all time. So he says, what did he do? Did he kill somebody? Did he murder someone? Verse 30, they answered him and said, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. <laughs> do, you do you see what this is? And they're like, look, He's a bad guy. Don't worry about what he's done. Just kill him. That's what they're saying. And verse 31, Pilate says, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Uh, and this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show us by what kind of death he was gonna die. Meaning, Jesus had predicted that he would die a death where he was lifted up that he would die on a cross, John 3, John 8, John 12. If Jesus, or if the Jews put Jesus to death, they would have done so by stoning like they did later on with Stephen. And you can read about that in Acts chapter eight, uh, Acts chapter seven. So Jesus had predicted that he would die the way the Romans put people to death. And so without even knowing it, the religious leaders are making choices that result in God's plan moving forward. Yep, it's all going according to plan. God is in control. People are making free choices and all those choices are bringing about God's plan. So are you seeing how religion and politics are working together? I'm telling you, that's never a good thing. So one more time, the religious leaders' rules are, 
Number one, we can't go into this guy's home because he's a dirty Gentile and we would be defiled. Number two, but we have to have an illegal trial in the middle of the night because it's the eve of a holy day and we want to murder somebody, so we can't do that on the eve of a major holy day. So we're going to find a way to get the outcome that we want by breaking rules and making new ones. The hypocrisy of people obsessed with power is that they break long-standing rules in order to make rules that fit their false narrative agendas. It's like Amazon canceling Dr. Seuss books for being racist but still allowing Adolf Hitler's books to be sold. I don't know what you call that, but I mean, that's, I call that rank hypocrisy. Verse 33, so Pilate entered the headquarters again, called Jesus and said, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? And Pilate said, look, am I a Jew? Have you got me confused here? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And what, what, when Jesus is asked, are you the king of the Jews? Pilate's not asking a theological question. He's not interested in whether or not Jesus is the Messiah according to the Jewish scriptures. What he's actually saying is, are you a political leader? Are you leading a political movement? Are you someone who's trying to undermine Roman power? That's the only thing that matters to Pilate. And Jesus says two things in response to Pilate's question. Verse, now look at verse 36. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting that I might be delivered, that I might not, not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said, so what are you saying? Are you saying, are you a king? Jesus said, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world to bear witness of the truth. So, first of all, I want you to see that Jesus' answer to Pilate is ambiguous. In verse 36, he says, no, I'm not a king because my kingdom is not of this world. In verse 37, he says, I am a king, that's why I've come into this world. Now, what's up with that? I mean, Jesus is being deliberately ambiguous because the answer is a bit complex. It's a bit com abstract. Really, there was no simple answer to Pilate's question. But for sure, he's saying that I did not come to lead the Hebrews in a military or a political uprising. But at the same time, he's saying the coming of God's kingdom into this world in me will, in fact, change everything. So on the one hand, he says, I'm not a political leader. If I were, my servants would be fighting to set me free. And by the way, when he says my servants would fight, he's not just talking about physical aggression. You remember back in verse 11 when uh, Jesus says to Peter, put away your sword. You know, Peter gets it out, you know, and chops off Malchus' ear, that whole, that whole Mr. Potato Head thing, or I should say Potato Head thing now. I can't say Mr. or Mrs. But anyway. So he, 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 he's, what he's saying is don't draw the sword in my name. You have to keep in mind that in the Bible, the sword, a sword is a weapon, but it also means political power. Now, the power of the sword is the power that the magistrate has to pass laws, to penalize you for breaking those laws, to fine you or to throw you in prison or put you to death if you don't do what the magistrate says. That's the power of the sword. So what Jesus is saying is, He's saying, I don't want anybody drawing the sword in my name. He is saying, my kingdom is not being moved forward through political power. And that means that nobody should ever wage war in Jesus' name. Now, as, 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 as citizens of this country, we can and we should fight against tyranny and oppression but we do so to establish justice for those who are powerless to oppose unjust rulers and unjust governments. Think World War II. 
Jesus isn't talking about that. He's saying, don't take up the sword in my name. That's not why I, come, why I came. I didn't come to reform the kingdoms of this world. I came to redeem this world. He's saying, my business is redemption, not national or political reformation. And he's also saying, I didn't come to make the Roman Empire into a Christian empire. Jesus didn't come to make pagan nations into Christian nations. He says, I didn't come from come for that purpose. My kingdom is not of this world. And I know some of you are saying, but wait, people have done that, right? I mean, people have done that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, in Asia and Latin America and Africa today, Christianity is growing many times faster than the population. And North America is kind of holding its own. The only place in the world where Christianity is in retreat, where churches are empty, where people have turned their backs on God and the church has no vitality is in Europe. And that's the only place in the world where they tried an experiment for a thousand years called Christendom. And Christendom goes against John 18. What they did in Europe is they had state churches and those churches were supported by the power of the sword by taxes and by laws in order to make, and, and, and in order to make it into the upper echelons of power in that society, you had to be a member of those churches. In other words, you had to be a Christian, or more to the point, you had to wear the label Christian because political power was behind it. But over time, the church lost its power and the church got corrupted by power. Mark it down, when the church gets in bed with political power, it loses spiritual power. And the church has always done better on the margins because it was not founded by a strong person who took power, but by a weak person who gave up power. So first of all, Jesus says, no, I'm not a political leader. I don't want people ruling and going to war in my name because my kingdom is not of this world. But then second, he says, but yes, I am a king and I've come into the world to bear witness of the truth. Look at verse 37, one more time. Pilate says, so you're a king? And Jesus said, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. What Jesus is saying here is, is I've come to change the way people actually live in the world. He's saying, I'm I'm not otherworldly in the sense that Christianity just gives you peace and joy and warm, fuzzy feelings in your private life. He he said, no, I've come to show you the truth about how God has designed life to be lived in this world that he's created. I've come to bear witness to the truth, and when truth, God's truth is embraced, it changes hearts, it changes lives, and it can have tremendous impact in changing a society. Now, let me give you an example, and I've adapted, adopted this uh, from Tim Keller, but Keller says, if you could get in a time machine and go back to, say, 1900, 121 years ago, if you could could go back in a time machine to 1900, or let's just say that you lived in, in the year 1900, you're living in America, and let's just say that you came to the conclusion that women were being oppressed in the home and in the workplace and sexual harassment was a terrible problem, and you decided, I want to get some laws passed so that women will be treated with respect. Equal to men, having all the same rights as men, well, good luck. In the year 1900, it's not going to happen. Because in that day and time, people would look at you, and they would say, what in the world are you talking about? Even women would say, say that. They would say, what are you talking about? This is just the way things are. So no way could you get a law passed. Uh, or even if it did pass, it wouldn't take. It, wouldn't, it would be disregarded, and here's why. Before those laws could be passed, which eventually they were, people's minds had to change. A mindset had to change in order for social change to occur. Their worldview had to change. Their understanding of truth had to change. Laws do not change people at a heart level. Laws can modify behavior, but it's truth that changes the way people live. 
And Jesus is saying, I've not come into the world as a political leader, but I've come into the world to change people's hearts with the truth. And if people embrace my truth, it'll change the way life in this world is lived, and it will change the way people relate to each other in this world. And it did. It did. How so? Well, the early Christian community was shaped by gospel truth, and it changed the way people lived, and it actually did change the Roman Empire. For example, on the one hand, Christian communities were, were more conservative than the surrounding culture when it came to sex and morality and family. The early Christian community was one of the first groups of people in the world to decide that abortion was wrong. And in those days, in the Roman world, parents could kill their children if they wanted to. It was their right. And when you had a child, when a child was born, if you didn't want that child, you could just throw that child into a field or you could throw them down on the side of the road and let them die of exposure. And that was usually something that was done to female babies because women were not as economically valuable to the family as men. So female infanticide was widespread. And historians will tell you that uh, around the time that the church was get, getting started in the Roman Empire, there were 140 males for every 100 females in the empire. But the Christian church came along and said, no, we are not killing babies. We are not gonna kill baby girls. And not only that, not only that but the Christian church said, no sex outside of marriage for anyone. You see, in the pagan world, wives were not allowed to have fair affairs. They could be put to death, but it was different from their husbands. All the husbands, lots of the husbands had mistresses and husbands could have affairs and it was a double standard. And the Christian church said, no, no more double standard. They, they took the truth of God's word and said no sex outside marriage for anyone. And guess what? Inside the Christian church, because of their beliefs and values, families flourished and families grew and women flocked to the church because they realized the church was a safe place for them. They flocked to the church because they realized that they would be protected there. So on the one hand, the church was much more conservative than the culture, but on the other hand, the early church communities were more liberal than the surrounding culture. Well, how so? Because gospel truth changed the way Christians viewed each other. Gospel truth was this. Everybody is a sinner, and everybody is saved by grace. The gospel was the great equalizer. Everyone is equal before God at the foot of the cross. We're all sinners saved by grace. And in the church, that translated into gatherings where men and women and rich and poor and black and white and slave and free and educated and uneducated, they all came together as equals in Jesus' name. And Christians met together with people of all races. They mixed with people from all nations and all classes of people. And that just was not done in respectful, respectable Roman society. It just wasn't done. It was, in fact, social etiquette prohibited it. But it, but it was happening in the church. The church was transforming society. It was a transformative society. Now, in addition to that, middle-class and upper-class Christians practice radical generosity to their brothers and sisters in Christ and even to those outside the church. And so, and so when it came to sex and morality, the Christian church seemed to be more conservative than the surrounding culture. When it came to money and race and power, it's much more liberal than the surrounding culture. And here's what's interesting. In all of these ways and many more, Christians, com Christian communities became way more attractive than the surrounding culture. And in talking about early Christians, one historian put it like this. He said, to cities filled with the homeless and impoverished, Christianity offered charity as well as hope. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new and expanded sense of family. To cities torn by violent ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity. What Christianity brought was not simply a spiritual movement, but a whole new culture, a counterculture 
an alternate way of being a human society. And to everybody looking in, except for the people on the top, the counterculture was more attractive than the dominant culture. And that's the reason that by the time of Constantine, and, and there are a lot of people who say, oh, Emperor Constantine, around 300 or so, he came along and he adopted Christianity and made it the state religion, and he's responsible for the Roman Empire becoming Christian. Well, that's true and not true. Christianity was already overwhelming the empire, not in numbers necessarily, but uh, Christianity stayed a minority, and most Romans were not Christians, but they but they eventually began to adopt Christian approaches to things, like a Christian approach to relationships and a Christian approach to the poor, a Christian approach to sexuality and family. They adopted this, this new way, the Christian way, because it was so life-giving and so attractive that Roman society slowly became less brutal and a far better place to live. And so it was fairly easy for Constantine to get the people to embrace Christianity. However, as I said, it was a big mistake to politicize Christianity and make it the state religion. Because when the church gets into bed with political power, it loses spiritual power and becomes corrupted itself. And that is exactly what happened. So, Jesus came to bear witness to the truth, and the early Christians bore witness to the truth, and the truth changed people's minds, it changed their hearts, it changed people's worldviews, and eventually, to some extent, it changed society at large. So Jesus is not saying have nothing to do with politics. He's not saying don't bother voting, just let will be what will be. He's not saying that, but on the other hand, he's most definitely saying that political power is not the way that you advance God's kingdom on earth. Jesus says in verse 37, he says this to Pilate. He says, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate says, what's truth? I mean, it sounds like he's been sitting in a, a philosophy class at Harvard. I mean, today we're told, and our students are told in secular universities, that there's no such thing as truth that applies to everyone. My truth is my truth. Your truth is your truth. But truth is uh, a matter of perception. Truth is a matter of personal opinion. There is no truth except the truth that there is no truth. And that held true for a long time, but now we're seeing something very different going on. We're seeing that the postmodern phrase, my truth is my truth and your truth is your truth, is no longer accepted as truth. Because today, those in political power are saying there is no truth but our truth. And you'd better get with the program or we're coming after you. Now, I truly believe that in the near future, Christians who believe and teach what the Bible says about God and life and faith and marriage and gender and abortion will be labeled as bigots and haters and racists. It's already happening and it's going to get worse and it will get worse if this so-called Equality Act is passed. We will be canceled. We will be censored. Christian books will no longer be able to be published. Online worship services like messages like this will be removed in the name of democracy. Now, I hope I'm wrong, but I'm telling you, I don't see anything right now in play that will stop the trajectory of where we're headed. I don't see, I'm, I hope something will come along, but I don't see it. Seriously, if they're censoring Dr. Seuss for being racist, what do you think they're going to end up doing with the Bible? I mean, Job had slaves. Just about everybody in the Bible had slaves. So, I mean, if you cancel people who ever in their life owned slaves, you've got to get rid of the Bible too, right? Listen, the kingdoms of this world are founded on power, military might, intellectual prowess, greed, corruption, arrogance, political cunning, financial abundance, and social advantage. What does the kingdom of God have to do with any of that? Unjust people cannot ensure justice for all. 
The kingdom of heaven is founded on Jesus who is the way, the truth, and the life, and only he can bring the changes we need in our world today. And Jesus is saying these two kingdoms are oil and water. They do not mix. And that means we have to choose which kingdom we're gonna serve. The kingdom of this world or the kingdom of God. Kingdoms founded on power are the God's kingdom that is founded on truth. So Pilate has a choice to make. Jesus says, I've come to bear witness to the truth. Pilate, if you're of the truth, you'll hear my voice. Pilate goes into this deer staring into headlight zone and gets all philosophical on us. But what's truth? But after he pulls him back to pulls himself back to reality, he goes back outside and he says to the Jewish religious leaders, I find no guilt in this man. Meaning, Jesus is not a threat to me nor to Caesar. Not guilty. Of course, that's not the end of the story, but that's where we're going to end the story today. So, 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 so here's the deal. Oh yeah, I heard someone has said that I'm saying here's the deal because Joe Biden says here's the deal. Come on, man. I just, I just absolutely could not resist that. Look, here's the deal. I've been saying here's the deal since I was in high school. And I looked in my sermon file as well, and <laughs> I have said, here's the deal, 284 times since 2005. <laughs> now, I'm having a little fun with all this. Th those kind of comments don't really bother me that much. A little bit, not much. But here's what does concern me. Too many, a growing number of Christians are not able to think well about what's going on in our world today because they're so obsessed with politics that it blinds them to what God might be doing in the midst of all the injustice that's going on around us. Too many in the church have put their hope in political solutions to fix the problems we face rather than in God. God who says, does your Bible say this? My Bible says this, that things will get worse and worse and worse before Jesus comes back. He will, he is coming again, and he will set right all the wrongs in this world. Yes, amen. But too many Christians have allowed the dominant filter of their lives to be politics. And that colors everything they say and hear, including God's word. Including when God's word is preached. And I'm telling you, if you struggle to hear the voice of Jesus over the voice of politics, you're in deep trouble. And I worry for you because you're not going to make it through what's coming. Now, here's what we learn about Jesus, truth, politics, and religion. Let me put it this way. Do you know what Jesus would say if he were dragged before a kangaroo court in our nation's capital? Do you know what he would say to those in power? He would say exactly the same thing to them as he did to Pilate. He would say, you have no power except that which has been given to you by my Father in heaven. And he would also add, and God is gonna hold you accountable for how you govern. God will hold you accountable for the choices you make about me and my church. Of course, <laughs> there's no way that that group in Washington is gonna shake in their boots if Jesus were to say something like that. But it's true. That's what he would say. And if it is true, then why do we as followers of Jesus not anchor our lives in that truth? I mean, what if God is using the injustice and the lawlessness and the corruption going on in our world today to move us closer and closer to Jesus' return? I mean, in this story, that's exactly what was happening. We see God was using injustice to move Jesus toward the cross that would bring redemption to the world. What if he's doing that again? Could it be that he's using the injustice going on in our world to move us closer and closer to kingdom come? And Romans 1 
What if God is giving people over to their lust for power? What if he's giving them over to, to, for, to their lust for life and lifestyles that are opposed to the truth of God? What if God is giving people over to their self-chosen suppression of God's truth and letting the corruption that's in the world overtake them? You see, that is a filter that says God is in sovereign control of all things and he's making history move towards the desired end. He's bringing history to a conclusion. That's what a gospel filter informs us of. Viewing everything going on in our world today through the filter of what we know about God, what we know about what is about what God's word says about the future, knowing that God is moving all of history towards the time when he'll make all things new. Mark it down, this passage is about religion, politics, truth, and Jesus. It's about how all too often religion tries to use political power to advance its own agendas. It's about politics how all those in positions of power are there only because God put them there and they'll be held accountable for how they govern. It's about truth, and truth is not what I say it is or what you say it is or what some politician says it is. Truth is what God says it is, and only God's truth can change hearts that change lives that ultimately can have an impact on society. But most of all, this Stories about Jesus. Jesus stood falsely accused before the hypocrisy of religious injustice. He suffered at the hands of horrifying political injustice, but he knew. He knew that it was all a part of God's plan to redeem this world and set it to rights. So Jesus endured injustice with grace. He knew everything was playing out according to his father's good plan, and he knew that God had put corrupt leaders in place to carry out that plan. Do you know that? Jesus endured injustice with grace, and I'll tell you, that causes me to anchor my faith and confidence in him now more than ever. Amen. Father God, thank you. Thank you for this word that penetrates like a sharp two-edged sword, penetrates to the division of soul and spirit. This word, this sword of the spirit, oh, we need it to change our hearts. We need it to change our minds We need our hearts and minds shaped and renewed so that we don't talk like everybody else that's so worried about what's happening. So that we're not shaken and angry and anxious all the time. Of course we care about what's going on. But God, forgive us for allowing political filters to replace gospel filters. God, keep us from the evil one. Keep us from sinning against you by not seeing Jesus as Lord of all. For it's in his name we pray, amen.